you'll pull those doors when you're done, Jen. Thank you. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 16 for just a couple of minutes, starting at verse number 13, John chapter or Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, I want to just talk to you today a little bit about eight lies that are prevalent within the church world. And uh, I want to expose them to show you that a lie is a lie. It's not true. And uh, the quicker that we grab a hold of this in our walk with the Lord, and some of these are easy to grab a hold of, and some of these are things that you and I will have to work on for, well, until Jesus comes. And uh, so if you'll just... Join me just with an opening prayer now over this lesson today. Lord, we praise your name. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Create in us clean hearts. Renew in us right spirits. If there be any unclean thing in us, wash us and cleanse us with the washing of water by your word. And Lord, I pray today that something that is said or done would take hold and take root in our spirits and in our hearts so that we can become more like you. I come against the lies of the enemy that would pervade the church and would try to hinder the church and try to hinder us in accomplishing what you want us to do. And Lord, I release your spirit in this place. I bind up anything and take dominion over anything that would hinder your presence and your spirit and your revelation. And I loose, Lord God, the touch of your hand upon this congregation. Lord, I'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor and thanksgiving. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen, amen. There is something about the church that throughout its history has attracted the crazies. Crazy people. Uh, and the reason why I believe that is because the Bible says through the foolishness of preaching is many saved. And so when we are operating in the flow of the Spirit, it won't make sense to a lot of people. And, uh, but then what ends up happening is the church attracts the enemy. The church attracts the enemy. Um, I, I wish I could tell you, some people think that the enemy doesn't care about the church. Oh, no, no, the, the, the Bible says that he believes in one God and trembles. So the devil's a believer. I saw posted recently on Facebook, I think it was, uh, the, the devil was a believer, so make sure you know the difference between a believer and a disciple. And uh, there is a difference. There's a lot of people that claim to believe and to be a believer. 
But I was studying this week and, and realized that the enemy usually doesn't come in and confront the church face to face because he knows we'd kick him in the teeth. And so what he does is he slithers. I saw another post. Facebook has become really cool with some of the posts that they've had. But I saw posted a picture, um, and it was a picture of a snake going through the foundation of a home and says, just remember, the serpent never comes through the front door. And, uh, and so there's, I, I'm sure there's more than this, but these are eight lies that I believe are prevalent in the church that you and I need to dismiss, first of all, understand, second of all, dismiss and overcome and follow in the path of the Lord. And so the first uh, lie that I believe is prevalent in the church is that some sins are worse than others. Some sins are worse than others. And so we treat people differently based upon their sin background. And, uh, but, but here's the problem with that is, is the book of James addresses this pretty, pretty explicitly once I get there. It says this in James 4 and verse number 7. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. Anyhow, this one just says this. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a good verse. It's not the one I was looking for. Uh, I think it might be Romans, but it, it's a scripture that says, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. How many did everything right this week? <laughs> you see, yeah, nobody's hands up. You see, we're all guilty, if you will, and uh, there is no classification of sin. Sin is sin. And uh, so you could be a murderer like the, the Apostle Paul, or you could just be a gossip. It's no different. Sin is sin. In fact, I would classify gossip as a greater sin than murder because the Bible says that from the mouth uh, is spoken life or death. And that the tongue is the one item that no man can tame. And so out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when you gossip, you're telling me what's inside your, your heart, and it's not very good. So we classify all these kinds of sins. There's murder and adultery and all these other things. And then there's these little, quote, white lies and this and this and this. The bottom line is, is sin is sin. And the consequence spiritually is the same. They both separate us from the presence of God. All sin, whether it be gossip, whether it be lying, whether it be cheating, whether it be murder, whether it be anything else, separates us from the presence of the Lord. Now, there are greater consequences, and this is why we misunderstand this lie. There are greater consequences for some of our actions in the natural realm. For instance, you're going to get in a whole lot more trouble if you go out from here today and murder somebody than if you go and gossip about somebody. Spiritually, it's the same, but naturally, you're going to pay a greater price. Okay? So, what, but what we've done is we've transferred that which is natural into that which is spiritual, and it's, they're, they're two different things. 
the consequences that we have because of our actions that are sinful in the natural reverberate in our atmosphere and in our actions in the world that we live in, but the, word, the, the concept of it spiritually is it separates us from God, plain and simple. And so the lie is that there's some that are worse than others, and the reason why we like to think that is because then we don't have to be as bad as the person sitting next to us. Well, all I did was cheat on a test. That person, that person beat somebody up, assaulted somebody. No different in the eyes of God. But in the eyes of the natural realm, obviously, it's a little different. And so the lie is that all, uh, that there are some that are worse than others. Pastor Sabin used to say it this way. There's very little difference between the sinners standing at the foot of the cross from the worst of us to the best of us. And really the only difference between the worst and the best of us is have we attached ourselves to the cross. So that's the, that's the first lie. And, and here's the reason why, this, why the enemy uses this lie. I've, I've mentioned it a little bit. But if there's anything, let me ask you it this way. How many here have a little bit of competitiveness in them? Okay, some of you are being honest. Okay, I don't like to lose. If I'm going to play a game, it doesn't matter whether it's her or it's anybody else. I'm going to win. And it infuriates me when I'm going to tell a story of my wife. Years ago, several years ago, when we came out, the game, we. So we're having family night playing games. But I know that I'm in the back of my head. I'm going to win this game. So we're at about hole 15 out of 18 holes 15 and I'm winning by about nine or ten strokes and there's no way she's catching up so does she finish the game no she reaches over and hits reset so she's as as competitive as I am some of you don't some of you will remember this some of you won't but we had a church picnic it was actually right about here that we did a relay race where we rode these inflatable animals and so Trish and I were going against each other and we got down to the end and she wasn't going to beat me and so I took the animal, I think I had a dragon or something and took the tail and I just knocked her right over, kept on going and uh, so I'm a little bit competitive, I understand that but here's why the enemy allows these lies to get in is because it feeds on our competitiveness because if I can look across the body of Christ and say, well, I'm better than that person, so I, I'm okay. Because that person's done this, and that person's done that, and this is their background, and I never dreamed of doing that. Okay? And so what ends up happening is it squelches the flow of the Spirit because one person is thinking they're okay. The other person's may not even be thinking about it, but there's this competitive attitude that says, I'm better than this, and I'm better than that. Listen, we are all sinners at the feet of Jesus until we come to Jesus. And it doesn't matter what we've done, where we've been, who we've seen, what we've accomplished or not accomplished, what we have committed or not committed. All I know is this. I go every day without doing everything that's right. So I know that I'm committing acts against the principles of the word of God. For him that knoweth knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If I know to do good and I don't do it, I'm sinning. So I need to have a Savior. 
just like anybody that's committing or thinking about things. So that's the first lie, and we just need to ax it out of the church, get rid of it. it. There is no sin that's worse. I need to repent as much for my gossip as I do if I murder somebody. Number two, this one gets me in trouble as a leader from time to time. God, this is the lie, God doesn't expect that much of me. How many have ever heard, it's free to live for Jesus? You can't earn it. You can't work it. You can't do it. There's nothing that you can do that can earn. It, it's all free. If Calvary's free. Somebody needs to read scripture and show me that. Because Jesus expects everything of us. He expects everything of us. Have you read the scripture where it says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? Have you read in the scripture where Paul says, I die daily, I am crucified with Christ? You see, we have this lie in the church that it's free to live for God. No, 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 it's going to cost you everything. If you're really wanting to be close to Jesus, it's going to cost you time, resource, talents, uh, mindset. It's going to cost you your agenda. It's going to cost you your plans. It's going to cost everything if you're really listening to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to take you on a journey that you could never even imagine. And so if he's going to take you on that journey and you're going to follow him, it's going to cost giving some things up. Listen, it's going to cost you some friends and relatives to live for Jesus. And, 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 and I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. In fact, Jesus told the people, forget about your parents, just follow me. You've got to, you've got to give everything up. Now, was, was Jesus saying you don't have to worry about No, what the, the mindset is, I need Jesus more than I need mom. I need Jesus more than I need wife. I need Jesus more than I need kids. I need Jesus more than I need friends. You see, there has been this pervasive lie that has crept into the church that I can have everything in the world that I want because Jesus is free. But the problem with that is Jesus isn't free. He paid the ultimate price. He gave everything for God so loved the world that he gave. And he gave so that he could experience what you and I experience so that we could have what he is. But the problem is, is we try to hold on to the things of the world and try to hold on to him thinking that we can do both. But the Bible says you can't serve both God and mammon. You're going to hate the one and love the other. Or you're going to love the one and hate the other. And so my question to you today is have you allowed that lie to get into your spirit that says God doesn't expect that much of me? Romans 12, 1 and 2 answers that question. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. He doesn't want you to die, but he wants you to sacrifice your life. Lord, is this your agenda for me? Is this your plan for me? I don't want to go outside your plan. I don't want to go outside your agenda. I don't want to walk on my own. I want to walk with you. 
There's too many churches in the world today that are saying just come as you are and be as you are and never change and never adapt and never come in to the the fold. Listen, you can come as you are, but you're not going to leave as you are. If you're going to come to Jesus, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to give some things up. You're going to have to turn some things over to him. Now, will he give some of those things back to you? Yes, I believe he does. I believe when we give up our family for him that God gives us family back. There's even a scripture, and I can't remember where it's at off the top of my head, but I think it's in the book of Proverbs, but it says that your spiritual family will become closer than your natural family if you're following Jesus. So that's the second lie. He doesn't expect that much of me. Everybody just say he expects everything. Think of that. All your idiosyncrasies, He's expecting you to have them and to use them by giving it to him. All your talents, all your mindsets. Number three, if you're a good communicator, you'll be a good preacher or pastor. See, the the, the preacher and the pastor, I'm not talking about a leadership role. I'm talking about a mentality. You and I are all called to preach. We are, according to the scriptures, we are the written epistle for the world today. You and I are meant, First uh, Peter 2, 9, he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we should show forth the praises of him. We need to be able to declare. We're, we're all preachers. Maybe not up on a platform, but we're all preachers and pastors uh, call to being caring for one another and being there for one another. Uh, and, and so just because you can communicate well doesn't mean you're good at it. You can be a good talker. There's some people that can talk circles around me. Doesn't make us good in declaring and caring. And, uh, and, and so what ends up happening in churches, just because you're not a good communicator, then you don't think you have anything to offer. Just because you can't get up on a Sunday and do what we do up here on the platform or, or during the midweek and teaching a Bible study, well, that means I can't... I can't There's no way God can use me in in preaching or pastoring. Oh, yeah, yeah, he can. Just showing forth his light from your life is declaring. That's preaching. You see, the key isn't your ability. The key is your integrity. The, The lie is there's a lot of communicators in the church that are this deep in communication skills and this deep in integrity. And what you end up happening over time is you have a group of people that are built on the charisma of the communicator instead of the integrity of the Savior. And what God wants in his church, he would rather have this much communication skills and this much integrity because this much integrity will speak volumes around what your communication skills can. And so what ends up happening is there's this mentality that I can't be a preacher, I can't be a pastor because I can't communicate and I can't teach and I can't speak. No, 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 that's a lie from the pit of hell. You are born a preacher. A preacher is simply one who declares the good news of the gospel. Has Jesus touched you? Then you can be a preacher. 
it, it's not me saying it. I just quoted it out of 1 Peter 2, 9. For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all of us can learn how to care for one another. You may not be an empathetic person, but you can care. So if your, if your integrity is that deep, then it doesn't matter what you do because you're doing it out of place of integrity and that will speak care to somebody else even though you're not the, you know, the huggy, lovey-dovey, you know, empathetic kind of person, which we've always told you if that's what you need, that's who you talk to. Does, does that make sense? And, and so what ha- what's happened is this lie has come in, so people are paralyzed by their fear that they are not able to declare or to care. And so they, they lock themselves into their chair in the sanctuary, and they don't move from it, and they don't realize that God has put in them a greater and more vast field to operate in and work in so that they can become everything that God wants them to become. Now, it helps to be a good communicator when you're doing something like I'm doing today. But when somebody's watching you walk through the grocery store, it doesn't care whether you can talk or not. They're just watching you. And is your integrity showing? Number four, a lie that's in the church today. God is not okay with doubt or anger. God is not okay with doubt or anger. Can can I just tell you that is a lie that gets people into trouble all the time? Because I can't argue with God. I can't show that that I'm angry with him, that I'm mad at him. I can't doubt whether he's real. If I doubt, then I'm a failure. We have labeled doubting Thomas as a negative. But I declare to you or suggest to you today that doubting Thomas is a positive. Because somebody that has a little bit of doubt doesn't fall for everything that falls off a tree. The Bible tells us to walk wise. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Listen, don't swallow everything that comes out. Don't, don't, that, that, well, I'm just living by faith, pastor. No, no, no. God asked you to reason. Come, let us reason together. The only way you reason is because you have a doubt about something. And the Bible, or, and Pastor Trout used to say it this way, he, it, a doubt is not lethal until it overtakes your belief. I believe in you, God. I don't understand you right now. I have some doubts. Let's reason. Reveal it to me. Share with me. Talk with me. Uh, let me find the right scripture. And that's a key component, by the way, for your doubts is scripture. Don't just take what anybody says. Go to scripture. Figure out if, if you're talking to somebody trying to find clarity, make sure they're going to scripture. Because what happens with Thomas, Thomas wouldn't believe that he was resurrected. Bad Thomas. But Thomas was the first one that bowed a knee to him and said, my Lord and my God, when he saw him. You don't read that from any of the other disciples, the ones that believed he is risen. You can believe that he's risen, but has he become your Lord? 
the first one in Scripture who declared Jesus as his Lord was Doubting Thomas. Thomas has gotten a bad rap. Thomas has gotten a bad rap because of his real name, Didymus. Nobody wants to preach about Didymus. It's not a nice flowing name. So we say Thomas. Well, Thomas could be anybody, so we clarified Doubting Thomas. He became known by quote-unquote doubting. But really, he was just clarifying. He says, I won't believe until I see. Now, I know that Jesus said, blessed are they that believe who haven't seen. I, I, I get that. But the doubt for Thomas became the launch pin of his servitude. At that point in time, when he saw with his eyes and touched with his hands, there was nothing pushing Thomas aside again. Doubts are not lethal. I have uh, told this to a lot of people that I've counseled through the years. When was the last time you had a shouting match with God? They look at me like, excuse me? Shouting match with God? Well, first of all, just before you know, you're going to lose. But he accepts it. I, I, I said... And so I would tell this person, they were so angry with God. Have you told them? Well, I can't tell them that I'm mad. I'm like, well, do you know the scripture that says he looks on the heart? He already knows you're mad. You might as well be honest about it. Get into a shouting match. If, you don't, if you're hurt by him, listen, just because he's your Lord and Savior doesn't mean he's not going to disappoint you from time to time. Because disappointment isn't about the actor, it's about the actee. I get disappointed because I have an expectation that was not met. Not because the person failed. They failed meeting my expectation. I have expectations about God, but when God doesn't come through, I can get disappointed about him. And so I'd be foolish to look at him and say, oh, everything's good. I'm good. In fact, Ephesians says this, be ye angry and sin not. Paul made it a commandment. Go ahead and get angry. Just don't sin. Just don't say, get angry. It's okay. God understands. He's a big God. He's been yelled at before. He's been criticized before. He's been ridiculed before. But there's this lie in the, in the church that says, I can't really be honest with God because I'm not supposed to get angry with him or disappointed with him. That stems from the fact that we use terminology that in hindsight is always good, but in present vision is not good. How many can say, uh, I've never seen the Lord, or I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread? Yeah, I can say that looking back, but when I don't have bread on the table for tomorrow, God, he's never failed me yet. Yeah, he has. Because I wanted something that I shouldn't have had, and he didn't give it to me. But in that moment, I was ticked. 16 years old, 17 years old, my dad sits down at the kitchen table and says, Tim, I'm going to get you a vehicle. Yeah. Thank you, Dad. Go to my room and pray. 
God, I want a Mustang GT64. Mint condition. In fact, there's a baby blue one down in Cottage Grove. We drive by it every time we go to Camp Galilee, and I see it sitting there right on the left. I love it, God. That's the car I want. Dad said he's getting me a car. That's the one. Speak to him, Lord. Open up the mind of understanding, God, and let him see that Mustang. He pulled into the yard and said, Tim, I'm home. I got your car. I walked up. It was a rusted out laundry van that he bought from Ameripride for $70. It had no seats except the driver's seat. It was a three on the column. And the Mustang, or the, the muffler, the Mustang, see I had it in my head. The muffler had a hole in it. People knew when I drove up to school. I have to tell you that I wasn't all that impressed with God in that moment. I had two complaints. God, you either didn't speak to him or he didn't listen. I'm upset with both of you for both. You see, he failed me. In that moment that I was standing at 441 Gentry Avenue North looking at this rust bucket van that was blue and white that had all kinds of nasty laundry smell on the inside, and I had asked God, and I had heard all my life, if you ask, he will answer. If you ask, he will answer. In that moment of time, he failed me. I was ticked. But thankfully, I had a dad that understood. Not that he went and got a different car. That was still my vehicle. But he understood about getting mad with God. And he challenged me even at 16. Don't be fearful of expressing yourself to him. So God and I had an argument because that beat-up van did not look like a Mustang And here's what I learned from that is God can make it work no matter what. I had that van for three more years. Mom and dad decided, now this is the 80s, okay, before you had to have seat belts and before you had to be safe. <laughs> so mom and dad got new living room furniture. So what went into the van? Well, we'll put it in the van to take it to wherever. Well, for the next three years, I had a couch and a love seat in the back of my van, and people drove in it all the time. I knew it wasn't going to make it from here to the East Coast, and so just before I left, I sold that $70 rust bucket van for $300 with the furniture in it. I said all that to say this, it's okay to be upset with God. He already knows you're mad. You might as well be honest about it. But the enemy has caused us this fear of having bad feelings about God because he's so good and he's so righteous. And he is so good and so righteous. But he understands what he created and put in the heart. Can I just tell you we are created in his image? And I think I've read a few times in scripture where God got mad. Just ask Noah. 
Just ask anybody that came into contact with him how mad he could get. The Bible over and over says it repented him for creating them. That's pretty angry. So he's okay with it. Number five, God's love for me is determined by my behavior. That's a lie. God's love for you is unconditional. The reason why God's love is unconditional for you is because the Bible declares that God is love. He can't help doing or being anything else but love, so he always loves you. In the worst moment of your life, the most sinful aspect of your life, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Here's where we fall short, or here's where our problem comes. We equate love to blessings. If he blesses me, he's showing me he loves me. If he's not blessing me, he's showing me that he doesn't love me. And that's the lie that has crept into the church. Can I just tell you that blessings and love do not line up? Blessings are oftentimes conditional. Love is unconditional. Over and over and over, God says, if you do this, I'll do that. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you bring the tithe and the offering into the storehouse, I will open up the window of heaven and pour you out a blessing. None of those things have anything to do with his love. They have to do with his blessings. And he gives conditional. It's, you know, we, we, we don't think about it this way, but it's really like our kids. If you clean your room, if you mow the lawn, if you shovel the driveway, I'll give you 20 bucks. I'll bless you if you do that. If you don't do that, I'm keeping my 20. Has that changed my love at all? No. See, we, we mix the blessings and the love up. And what God is trying to say, or what the enemy tries to do with his lie, that, it's, that God only loves you based on your behavior, lets us know we, 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 we walk on eggshells all the time. Well, he's not going to love me if I step over here, or if I do this, or if I go there, or if I think this, or if I say this. If I, if I go off on my kids, or I go off on my spouse because they've gotten on my very last nerve, and they're jumping up and down on it then God doesn't love me. He loves you even then. Don't mistake his blessing for his love. Some blessings are just given by the blesser. But most blessings are a response to an act of obedience. So never question his love. Number six, a great lie. We should never water down the message. It's a lie. And some of you that have been around church for a long time, you're on the edge of your seat and you're going, pastor's lost his mind. You see, we've mixed up the words water down and compromise. And we say if we water it down, we're compromising it. There's a difference. The message can't be compromised, but it's got to be watered down. Because if I would have stood up here today and said, I am going to be teaching 
on the eschatological soteriology of a theocratic—can't even say it—a theocratic experience. How many would know what I'm saying? Barely. But if I watered it down and said, I want to talk about the day that we're living in, the experience of salvation that you can have with the God that loves you. Have I changed the message? No, but I have watered it down to the level of the audience. You see, you have to understand who you're communicating with. I, I, I remember in Bible school, we had some people that liked to use big words to make themselves sound intelligent. And I had a friend of mine, I won't mention his name. If he ever watches this, he'll know it's him because he used to be a country disc jockey while he was in Bible college. But this gentleman came into our dorm room and started using all of these big fanciful sentences. And this friend of mine finally looked at him and said, so what you're telling me is you love Jesus, huh? The guy that's what I got out of it. Well, that's what I was trying to say. Well, just say you love Jesus then. You, you, you see, the, the enemy has put this thing that we have to be this deep and this intellectual giants. And No, no, no. You just need to communicate the good news of the gospel. What's the good news of the gospel? Jesus loved me, died for me, and gave me an opportunity. Watered down but not compromised. Now, you can never compromise the message. The message is established forever. But the way you communicate it, the way you live it out, the way you experience it, God didn't save me based off of my Ph.D. because I don't got one. He saved me as a 10-year-old boy because in that 10-year-old boy's understanding, he knew who Jesus was. Now, have I learned some more since then? Oh, yeah. You constantly grow, and you constantly get to know more about him, and you constantly elevate your understanding of him. But it's okay to water it down, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, translations are basically that. Translations are the watering down. Now, in some cases, I have problems with some translations because they compromise the original text. But that's what the motive, for instance, Eugene Peterson wrote the message. His motive wasn't to change the Bible. But it's his interpretation of everyday language that we can get. I would never make a doctrinal statement based off of Eugene Peterson's The Message because it is an explanation. I always go to the original manuscripts to make a doctrinal statement. But to get an understanding Absolutely. It's the reason why I don't always preach in the King James. Now, sometimes I do, not because you're more comfortable, because you're probably not as comfortable with the King James, but it flows out of me because that's all I knew for so long, and that's all I memorized. Okay? But I've used the ESV. I've used the NLT. I've used the NET. And the reason is, isn't that a change of Scripture. It just makes it easier to read and understand, if that makes sense. Number seven, we're almost there. This one's a big one, and, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but I'm going to. God, this is the lie, God wants me to be happy. God could care less whether you're happy. God wants you to have joy, 
But let me ask you, if you read Scripture, how often is the tests and the trials of life originated by God? A lot. You see, I I have this feeling that if you read the book of Job and God calls Satan into his office and says, Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job yet? Because I want to make him happy. Hey, disciples, get into the boat and go over the sea. I'm going to stay here for a little bit, and then I'll join you, knowing full well that a severe storm is getting ready to happen to where the the disciples are fearful for their life in the middle of a sea because Jesus sent them into the storm. See, he doesn't care about whether you're happy. He wants you to be full of joy, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. But he wants you, and joy is an adoration that extends beyond emotion. But happiness, our founders in America had it right, the pursuit of happiness. We have the right to pursue it because we're never going to catch it. We'll catch it maybe for a glimpse. But that moment that you have that sheer happiness... Just wait for about eight hours until the alarm clock goes off the next day and see how happy you are when you get out of your house and it's 10 below zero. You see, happiness is directly affected by what's going on around us. And Jesus basically said, I need you to be joyful no matter what's going around you because joy is what's going to get you through. Happiness is going to be fleeting. So Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 can sit in the depths of the prison. I'm sure they weren't very happy. But they were joyful. And so they sang praises. I don't know if it made Peter very happy to be hung on a cross for his death, but it made him joyful. You see, there's this lie that you've got to be happy, that you're not going to have a... Uh, I, I wrote an a, a essay uh, back in college. It was called uh, The Rose. And my, the, the point of the, the essay that I wrote was that the question that God didn't promise us a bed of roses. I've heard that my whole life. God didn't promise you a bed of roses. Oh, yes, he did. He promised you a bed of roses. Now, you know, if you've been around here, how much I like roses. Zero. But if you go into a rose bed, you're going to get the aroma of the roses. You're going to get the beauty of the roses, but you're also going to get the thorns of the roses. You'll get mountain peak happiness, and then you're going to get a thorn in your finger. And the rose bush becomes a love-hate relationship because it's based on what we feel. But God is trying to tell somebody that if you'll just walk with me, even among the thorns, I'll give you enough of those times that you're happy, but just understand that the whole rose has more to do than just happiness. See, if the devil can get you to think that God wants you to be happy, then when you're not happy, then it's God's fault. And you're critical of God. Well, God, I thought you wanted me to be happy. Who told you that? He wants you to be filled with joy. And then the last thing here 
the lie is our primary focus should be on the household of faith. Listen, you're important. You're part of the church. But the church can't be the primary focus. The church is designed to be the conduit to reach the unchurched. When we get so focused inwardly as a church body, we will begin to die. I have seen it time and again, churches that have become so focused on the body, so focused on the church, so focused on one another, that it is like going through brick walls to get and to allow a guest to join them. Because I'm taking care of the body. There are moments that the body needs to be taken care of, but the primary focus of the body is to reveal Jesus to an unsaved world. And what ends up happening is if God ever gets our eyes to the outside, he blesses from the inside. See, how many of you have started attending this church since 2009? See, I can, I can count the people that were here in 2009 easier than the ones that can't. You, you want to know what? You were once an outsider. Now you're an insider. But you're not an insider to be an insider. You're an insider to help us reach the outsiders. I love the household of faith. Please don't misunderstand me. I love pastoring. I love taking care of the sheep of the fold. I love doing all of that. But if God doesn't have us reaching outside the sheepfold to touch other people's lives, the sheepfold can only become so strong before it becomes too weak. Eight lies. I hope I've exposed these lies so that you can stamp them out of your life. Some sins are worse than others. God doesn't expect that much of me. If you're a good communicator, you'll be a good preacher or pastor. God is not okay with doubt or anger. God's love for me is determined by my behavior. We should never water down the message. God wants me to be happy, and our primary focus should be the household of faith. I bind those eight lies up today. I want people of all stripes welcome in the house of the Lord. Whatever their background, I, I want God to expect more of me. It, it's like if you look at an athlete, athletic team, there are certain people that they look to because they expect more from. I want to be one of those expect more from. I want to be a good declarer, preacher, and pastor because my integrity level is high. I, I, I want to not worry about having doubts or anger towards God because I know he knows. I, I, I know his love. It doesn't waver. It doesn't shift. It doesn't move. He loves me. 
I want to understand what Jesus is saying. It's the reason why we have the English version instead of the Latin version. Whether I'm happy or unhappy, I want to be filled with joy. And I want to reach as many people as we can reach before the trumpet of God. Praise God. I invite you to stand. Don't let these lies swallow you up. I know they creep in at all different times, in all different kinds of churches, and I know they've been in this church. But just silence them and say, mm. Pastor just said that's just a lie. Some of you here are here today and you may be upset with God. It's a good day to let him know. Some of you have questioned whether he loves you or not because you haven't received the blessings that you thought you would have. Oh, no, no, he, he still loves you. Would you reach out to him for just a moment? Jesus, I sense the sweet presence of the Lord in this house right now. And, Lord, I'm excited about what's going to happen in our second service, but just for these 30 seconds, Lord, I'm asking you to step into this place Surround your people right now. I come against each one of these lies that are found within churches, groups of people that love you. I bind these lies. I command them to be silenced. And I loose the sweet fragrance of your voice and the aroma of your presence in this house. I ask you to wrap your loving arms around each one and let them feel the tangible expression of love from your heart. Lord, we'll always be careful to give you praise and glory for all things because you're the only one that's worthy. Lord, we look forward to our next service in worship and praise and in revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Uh, we'll get